written by Moses. You know that from many places uh, throughout the New Testament that pointed back to Moses especially, and especially Jesus. He quotes this as, as being from Moses. So Moses wrote this book, and what that lets you know is that this book is connected to the time period when the people of Israel were coming out of Egypt, and they were becoming a nation for the first time. This is the time period that the book of Genesis is connected to, okay? It's 50 chapters long, and it's, you can break it up into two major sections. 50 chapters long, break it into two major sections. Here they are. Genesis 1 through 11, many people call it the primitive history. That's Genesis 1 through 11. Genesis 12 through 50, many call that the patriarchal, patriarchal history. So what does this mean? This means that first section, 1 through 11, is about the history of the whole world. And it means that second section, 12 through 50, is about the history of the nation of Israel. Okay, it's zoned in. The first section, 1 through 11, it covers over 2,000 years of time. The second section, 12 through 50, it zone, zones in on one family and gets you in under 300 years. Okay, so you've got this, you've got this zoom out to the big picture of what all things were created, the, the history of the world, and in chapter 12, it zones in. I wonder why. And it zones in on one family, Abraham and his family. Chapters 1 through 11, you can break it down like this. It talks about the creation of all things. It talks about the fall into sin of mankind. It talks about the flood when God destroyed the whole earth except eight people with a flood and judgment. And it talks about the dispersion of the Tower of Babel. Remember that where why do we have nations of people dispersed abroad in different nations, tribes, and tongues? And it talks about that in the first 11 chapters. The second section, 12 through 50, it walks through this family, Abraham. So it zones in. you got all these nations, and it zones in on one family, Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, and then his 12 sons on out, and especially on Joseph, okay? So you kind of see this breakdown between these two sections. We are committed who knows what the Lord might do, but we're committed to rolling through the primitive history. The first section of Genesis together, okay? Alright, not today, but over time, we're going to walk through chapter 1 through 11. Alright, so what is the main point? What is the main point of the book of Genesis? What's the main point of this book? What is this book all about? That's what I said in your sheet. What is this book really all about? Anybody got a quick one-liner? What's this book all about? What's the main point of it? I heard Jesus. Amen. Could you prove that? It's about Christ. Okay, listen, listen to me. Genesis is not, let me tell you what it's not. It is not just a collection of stories that give us bad examples and good examples. That's not what the book of Genesis is. Okay, this is the, this is like the kitty book interpretation, right? This, you've seen that, right? You see people use it like that? Uh, little Timmy, uh, don't be like Adam and Eve. See the consequences, little Timmy? That's not how we look at this book, right? Or little Timmy, uh, uh, don't be like Cain. He murdered his brother. Be like Abel who did what was right. Or little Timmy, don't be like Noah. I mean, excuse me, be like Noah. Be like Noah who obeyed God and built that ark. Don't mention that he got naked and drunk. Don't mention that part. You know what I'm saying? It's not the point of the book. You don't look at it this way. It's not the way we think about Genesis. There are good and bad examples throughout. But, it, but what's the main point? What is the point of the book of Genesis? 
Let me tell you something else that it's not. The book of Genesis is not mainly about competing worldviews. It's not mainly about competing worldviews of biblical creationism or uh, intelligent design versus atheistic evolution. It's not mainly about these things. Now, don't get me wrong. I love thinking and learning and talking about those things, those worldviews. But I'll say this. It really does grieve me when I see my brothers and sisters so interested in those things. And yet if I press you on what is the point of this book, show me the point of Genesis. You couldn't give it to me. And it grieves me that that is the case. I want us to be a people with a rock solid foundation, a rock solid confidence in the creation account given to us in Genesis chapter 1. But I also want us to be a people that get it. We get and we love and we, we rejoice in the main point of this book. I want us to be a people that do that. So what is the main point of the book? It's the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the main point of Genesis. And what do you mean? What do you mean by the gospel? The gospel in the Bible is called the message of the cross. It's about Christ Jesus who went to the cross. The gospel. The gospel is the good news that there is a way for people like us, sinful people like us, to be delivered from our sin, to be delivered from eternal destruction. There's a way that's good news. The good news that though we have rebelled against God, God Almighty has made a way through Jesus by sending Him to take our sins, to take the wrath of God we're supposed to take onto Himself so that we can be delivered and He rises from the grave. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, how is Genesis, this first book, before Christ Jesus came into the world in the flesh, how is this book about the gospel? Let me tell you what you see in this book. You think about it. In the book of Genesis, you see the greatness and the holiness of God gets introduced to you. You see the wretched sinfulness of man gets exposed to you. And you get this plan that there is, a, there is redemption coming. There is a redeemer coming. And all of that is found in the book of Genesis. Let me give you an example. Uh, the greatness and the holiness of God found in the book of Genesis. We see this in the creation. We see His, his greatness in the creation of all things. We see His, his great holiness in that this one sin plunged the, plunged the human race into destruction forever. We see His holiness in that these people are, are every intent of the thought of their hearts are wicked continually. So He wipes them all out on the foot except eight people who found grace in His sight. And even they didn't deserve it. You see this? We see His greatness and the holiness of God, the way He thinks about sin. And then we see the wretched sinfulness of man. The fall of man is found in chapter 3 when man rebels against God. And then it unfolds all the way through Cain and Abel when he murders his brother. And you see it all the way through, just unfolds more and more of the wretched, sinful character of mankind. It's all the way through that book. So you get to the end of Genesis 11, or, at the, or actually the beginning of Genesis 11, when you see these people rebel against God and they want to make a name for themselves and build this tower of Babel. So you see that here. And you also see the gospel. You've got this greatness of God. You've got this sinfulness of man, and you see the gospel. I want you to get your eyes on some of these verses. Go to Genesis chapter 3. Now, for some, for some of you, this will be brand new. 
And I'm telling you, you need to know this. For some of you, this will be a glorious reminder. The gospel in Genesis, the good news in Genesis, holiness of God, great sinfulness of man. And then here's this glorious gospel. In chapter 3, if you remember, what you see in chapter 3 is where man falls and rebels against God. This is what you see, right? So this is the backdrop. Man falls in Genesis chapter 3. And in verse 15, when God begins to confront the serpent who is Satan, when he begins to confront him, look what he says in verse 15. Some people call this the first gospel. Listen. And I will put enmity between you, that's Satan, and the woman. That's the one who failed sin. And between your seed, that's Satan, and her seed. What? She's going to have a seed? This lady, this Eve's going to have a seed? Is that what that just said? He. Her seed is going to be a he that's coming. You're going to have a seed. It's going to be a, a he. And he's going to do what? He shall bruise your head. He says, Satan, he's going to crush your head. The word there is crush. He's going to crush your head. And then he goes on to say, and you shall crush his heel. And as, as I told you before, the picture there is a battle. One gets the heel crushed. One gets the head crushed. Who is the winner? The one who crushed the head. So what I'm getting at is there's one coming who would suffer like the crushing of a heel. He would suffer for us and he's coming. But listen, he is going to crush the head of the tempter who tempted them at the very beginning. Christ is coming. This is the gospel in Genesis. You go to chapter 4, you got this backdrop of this story of Cain and Abel. And you see the sinfulness of man. This man rises up in jealousy and he murders, he murders his brother. And then you get this little bit of a piece of information here at the end of chapter 4, verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And so what you see right here at the end is this hope. You got the great sinfulness of man, but there's hope in the lineage of Seth. It's coming. Christ Jesus is coming. Why does it give us that right there? Because Christ Jesus is coming. He's coming. This is what he's telling us. You get into chapter uh, chapter 11. Chapter 11, you got this backdrop of the Tower of Babel and how man rebelled against God in sinfulness. You got this backdrop in verses 1 through 10. And then what happens in verse 10? This is the genealogy of Shem. And you get Shem had a son named Shem, had sons and daughters named they had, and he goes, and he goes on and on. The genealogy, so and so begot so and so, begot so and so, and it takes you all the way up to Noah. Why? Because there's hope in that lineage. There's one coming. There's this backdrop of rebellion against God at the Tower of Babel, but there's one coming through the lineage of Noah's son, Shem. Then you get to chapter 12. Excuse me, I said it landed on Noah. I meant Abraham a minute ago. I said no, I meant Abraham. So the gene genealogy of Shem goes to Abraham. In chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, you get this introduction, okay, to Abraham's life. And you get this promise to Abraham. And look at verse, verse 3. He tells Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Amen. So listen, Galatians 3.8 calls that, he quotes that, he calls that gospel. Why would that be gospel? Because what he's telling Abraham is Abraham, that one who I said is going to come to crush Satan's head, he's going to come and through your seed, he's going to bless all nations. He's going to be the one that comes and makes a way for all nations to be saved from hell forever. He says it again in chapter 22, verse 18, where he says, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Go to chapter 26. 
We get Abraham's life, and then we get the life of his son Isaac. And look what he says to Isaac in Genesis 26, verse 4. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to you, I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Same promise. Same promise given to Abraham, given to his son Isaac. There's coming one in your seed who's going to crush Satan's head and bless all nations. And then you get his, his son, chapter 28, verse 14. Listen, same promise to Jacob, his son. Same promise. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's coming one through your family. He's coming, going to crush Satan's head. And you see this over and over. Eventually, that man has 12 sons. Go to chapter 49. Eventually, that man has 12 sons. And one of those sons' name is Judah. Which son is it coming through? Which son is the Christ coming through? Genesis chapter 49. He sits back and he's about to bless all his sons before he dies. And look at what he says to Judah. Verse 8. Judah, you are whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Kind of like you'll crush them under your feet. Go to verse 10. The scepter. The scepter. That's the idea of he's a king. And there's going to be a kingdom. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. That is an odd thing to say to a, a, a family. Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob and his 12 sons. Did he just say something about you being a king? This is not a nation. This is a family. But he's been saying the whole time, I'm going to make you a nation. And through you all, the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And he just said the one coming, not only is going to crush Satan's head, not only is going to bless all nations, but he is going to be a king. And the scepter will never, ever depart from Judah. Christ Jesus is coming. This is the point of Genesis. And so what happens, this sets the stage for the rest of the Bible. This literally sets the stage for the rest of the Bible. The rest of the Bible unfolds for us who Christ Jesus is and how sinful people like me and you can have our sins paid for as He dies for us at the cross and we're delivered forever from the wrath to come. Genesis' main point is the Gospel. We can call this series the Gospel according to Genesis. Right? This is where we're headed. Now, I want you to remember something real quick. The main point of Genesis is the gospel. And remember this. I, I said to you earlier that when this is written by Moses and it was written during that time, during that time period where they're being pulled out of Egypt and for the first time they're becoming a nation. Just like he promised Abraham that they're going to become a nation. Well, they do. Okay? So it's written during that time period by Moses during that time where for the first time they become this nation as they come out of Egypt, no longer slaves, and they become their own people. Okay? Now I want you to think about this. If they get the book of Genesis during that time period, oh man, wouldn't that be a reminder to them that it ain't all about them? Wouldn't that be a reminder to them of that? Think about the book of Genesis. They would be reminded of who God is and what God's purpose is. Who God is and why He's making them a nation. They would have been reminded that it is not all about themselves. In fact, I want, you to, I want, to, I want to read this verse to you. 
God would go on in a very straightforward like manner to say this very directly to them, okay? Not just in the book of Genesis, but listen to this. This is Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 3. Listen. He says, Understand today, this is just before they're heading to the promised land. They've been pulled out as a nation, and they're about to head into the promised land. He says, Understand today that the Lord your God is He who goes over before you as a consuming fire. I'm going as a consuming fire before you into the promised land. Do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. He says, don't you think that? Don't you think that? It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land. Understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. You think he's trying to make a point? Yep. He goes on to say, you are a stiff-necked people. Then he says, remember. He's like, I want you to remember that you are a stiff-necked people. And he goes into it. Don't forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day that you departed from the land of Egypt to the, until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. And he goes on to give example after example after example of their rebellion so he can say to them, it is not because of your righteousness that I'm bringing you into this land. It's not because of that. So imagine these people coming out of Egypt. They're a nation. They're the people of God. They're the people of Israel. And then they get the book of Genesis. And they get this reminder that it is God who created all things. And it is all about Him. That mankind has been plunged into sinfulness from the very beginning. And they are a part of it. They know their own sin. And not only that, but the only reason... The only reason that they are a nation is because through them is coming a rescuer. Through them, through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, through Judah, through the people of Israel is coming a rescuer. And they would know, man, this ain't all about us. We're coming out of Egypt, but this is not all about us. So I'm very excited for us walking through Genesis 1 through 11 together. And right now, I want to zone in on these first two verses, okay? First two verses, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. First two verses, this is all about God. We're starting verse 1, all about God here. It says, in the beginning, God created. So take those words first. In the beginning, God created. It's just three words in Hebrew. In the beginning, God created. This is what's here, okay? This, these are our first words about God, and that's a big deal, right? That's the main point of this, is to show us who God is, to display God to us in this book, and here are the first words about our God. In the beginning, God created. Let me ask you this. What comes to your mind when you think about God? Just ponder that quietly. What comes to your mind? You, you hear this word God, or you think about God, what comes into your mind? Even now. What comes into your mind when you think about God? A.W. Tozer said this. He says, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He tends to think this is a very big deal. What you think about God is of massive importance. 
Because he, he is something. He is incomprehensible. And He has revealed Himself to us. And He allows us to know things about Him. And so if you think wrongly and low, small thoughts about this God, that's not good for you. What do you think about God? What comes to your mind when you think about God? The most important thing about you. So who is God? Who is God? What does this phrase, in the beginning God created, what does it tell us about God? Here's the first thing I want to tell you. That word there for God is Elohim. Elohim is the Hebrew word for God. Elohim. It, it, uh, it stresses the majesty, the omnipotence of this majestic, all-powerful God, Elohim. Now, why am I telling you that the Hebrew word there is Elohim? Why am I telling you that? Okay. Here's why. Because in our English language, this word, God, has sadly become so common today. That you just hear it. So often you hear it. And it's just so common. And you don't hear it with reverence and majesty. It's just become a common word. So what I want to do. Is I want to put before you. The less familiar word. Elohim. I want to put that before you. In the beginning. Elohim created. God did that. Elohim. And here's why I want to tell you this. Okay. This name of God. In Genesis chapter 1. Is, is used. Elohim is there a whopping 35 times in 31 verses. So you read through it 35 times. Elohim. Elohim. In 31 verses. Now that should be a clear sign to you that Genesis chapter 1 is all about God. And so if you're reading down through Genesis 1, you see God, 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 God. Because that word might be a little, a little, uh, you might be a little numb to that word. It might not mean as much, but you go down and read through it and you hear Elohim, 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 Elohim. 35 times in 31 verses, you're going to walk away and say, this chapter in this book is about God. He's displaying who God is to me. Who is God? Who is this God? This book, Genesis, this chapter, and even these few verses are meant to answer the question, who is God? What is He like? This book, this chapter, these few, few verses are not mainly meant to be about you or about your life or about your welfare or about you having a successful life. This is about God. It's mainly about God, about Elohim. Ken Hughes said it like this. He says, Genesis is about God from first to last. And to read it in any other way is to misread it. You need to read this and know your God. In the beginning, God created. So what do these first words tell us? What do they tell us about God? Now go down the list here on your sheet. First, that He is the eternal God. He is the everlasting God. He's the eternal Elohim. It says right here, in the beginning. That's a measure of time. In the beginning. A measure of time. Well, in the beginning, where was God? Where was He? And He's just simply there. He's just there. In the beginning, God. He's the eternal one who was and is and is to come. God is just there in the beginning. No explanation. No comments about what happened beforehand. God is just simply there. The eternal God. God is eternal. Now here's, here's what I want you to see. When I say this, I do not mean that He just existed forever in the past. I don't just mean that. That's true. But here's what I mean. He is timeless. 
This means he is outside of time. Time has no constraint on him. The idea of eternity is outside of time. It's beyond time. And he fills up eternity. Isaiah 57 verse 5 says he inhabits eternity. The high and lofty one inhabits eternity. That God was at the beginning is not that hard to grasp, right? And that God was before the beginning is not too hard to grasp. You kind of grasp that. But to grasp the fact that he is at the beginning and he is at the end, simultaneously seeing both just as clear, just as vivid, as if he's there at all the time, he fills up all of eternity. And that's the place where it blows our minds. We can't grasp that. Or as a friend of mine said, it cooks your brain. From outside of time, in the beginning, God, from outside of time, God views all, all of time simultaneously, okay? Isaiah 46.10 says this. He declares the end from the beginning. He declares, He's sitting in the beginning and He can declare the end. He declares the end from the beginning because He feels all of eternity. This is the reason why Moses would go on in Genesis 21.33 to call Him the everlasting God. I heard one quote from a commentary that was this and I liked it. He said, he has already lived all our tomorrows as He has lived all our yesterdays. He's the eternal God. He is also, in the beginning, God created. He is the Creator God. He is the Creator God. Out of nothing, God created all things. Out of nothing, God created everything that you can see, everything that you cannot see. God created all things. It was not hard for Him. He simply spoke it into existence. How do you go from matter, or excuse me, no matter, no atoms, no protons, no neutrons, no electrons, nothing. How do you go from nothing to something? Boom, there it is. We have no idea. But God knows. In the beginning, God created. You want light? God says, light, be. And there it is. You want planets and stars and other celestial bodies all throughout this universe. How does it happen? God says it and it's done. Just like that. This is your God. Our words, think about our words. They simply communicate a thought from here to your brain. That's our words. And we don't even do a good job of that sometimes. Okay? God's words not only communicate, but they are created. He speaks things into existence. He is the creator God. Think about it. Let your mind go there this morning. This is the God that you serve. Now this exalts his power. This exalts, it exalts his wisdom. Listen to Jeremiah 10, 12. He has made the earth. That's creation. He's made the earth by his power. And he's established the world by his Wisdom. Do you know how massive the universe is? Have you ever thought about how massive the universe is? And then you know this. By the word of the Lord. This is Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. How powerful must he be to bring this massive universe into existence with his breath? His wisdom. Think about just the, the unity of this universe and how things are so 
beautiful and it just exalts the wisdom of God and all that he's done from the most massive things you can see and think about to the tiny particles in your body. How, how does he do it? It's his power and it's his wisdom and it's displayed here, okay? So, so, brothers and sisters, if you just pondered for a moment, if you took a moment just to ponder and let your mind go there about what God said to Job, when God was aiming at humbling Job and he wanted to speak to Job and reveal some things to him about who he is as creator God, just what would that do to you? Listen to what God has said. Job 30, 38 verse 4, he said this to him. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. And at this point, Joseph's going, oh no, God. I have no idea how this went down. You were awesome. Job 38 verse 8. Who shut in the sea with doors? When it burst forth and issued from the womb, when I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors, when I said, this far you may come, but no farther, and here your proud ways must stop. And Job goes, man, God, you are amazing. Listen, Job 38 verse 12. Job, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Have you ever said morning come up and it obeyed you? And Job said, no. I ain't never done that. Job 34 verse 38 verse 34. Job, can you lift up your voice to the clouds that an abundance of water may cover you? Can you send out lightnings that they may go? And then they say to you, here we are. Does the, does the lightning speak to you and ask your permission, Job? And Job says, uh-uh. And you never done that to me. Job 40, verse 9. Job, have you an arm like God? Or can you thunder with a voice like His? And He says, well then adorn yourself with majesty and splendor. Array yourself with glory and beauty. Disperse the rage of your wrath. Look on everyone who is proud and humble Him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together. Blind their faces in hidden darkness. Then I will also confess that your right hand can save you. What's the point? You can't do it. You can't do it. What a mighty creator God that we serve. And I hope it hits you that there is none like him. There is none eternal like him. And there is none as creator God like him. Next is this. So remember the question is, what are these first words? In the beginning, God created. He's eternal. He's creator God. In the beginning, God created. What do these words say about God? Next one is this. He is the transcendent God. He is the transcendent God. The, trans the transcendence of God means that God is above all his creation. He is independent of all that he creates. All creation is dependent on him, but he is dependent on no one. Hebrews 1.3 says that all things are upheld by the word of his power, but he is upheld by no one. This is the point. The transcendence of God. It says, in the beginning God created the heavens and earth. This means he was already there. Before things were created, God was there. He's already there. So he needs none of these things that he creates. His existence did not and does not depend on anything created that you can see or that you cannot see. 
God is transcendent in his self-existence. His self-existence. This means his self-existence means he has no origin. He has no beginning. Only God has no origin. Everything else originated somewhere at some time. And yet God has no origin. This is getting into the realm where we can't hardly grasp it, right? How can he have no beginning? All children at some point, you think about the questions children ask. They ask questions like, where did God come from? Or who made God? And they wonder these kind of questions. And this is a legitimate uh, uh, creature type question, right? Because everything we know of has a beginning. Everything we know of has an origin. And yet when you try to turn and apply to God, you enter into a whole realm of unfamiliar thinking. Who made God? Where did God begin? And you say, he did not begin. He has no beginning. He is the beginning. That our God has no origin. He said to Moses, I am who I am. Plain and simple. I am who I am. And Moses later on would write down, in the beginning, in the beginning, God, he's just simply there. Outside of all things that he has created, the self-existent God. He, God's transcendence means that God is self-sufficient. He's the self-sufficient God. Think about it. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Again, before mankind, before animals, before any creation of anything whatsoever, God did not any way need any of these things. He's just there. He's self-sufficient, self but he's self-sufficient. He's just there, and he doesn't need these things. Before they're ever created, our God is, our God is there, and our God reigns. He doesn't need his creation. I get a little bit uneasy when I hear people say things like, God needs us to go share the gospel. Or God needs us to bring him glory. And I get a little uneasy about language like that because God needs nothing. He's self-sufficient. God needs no one. He is self-sufficient. He is completely sufficient in and of himself. John chapter 5 verse 26 says, The Father has life. Where did he get it? In himself. The Father has life in himself. All other life is derived from God. As a gift from God. Angels have life because of God. Babies in the womb have life because of God. He gives it to them as a gift. But he just, our God just has life in himself. If God draws his life giving hand, everything goes to dust in a moment and life is lost. But our God has life in himself. Acts 17 verse 25. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Since he gives to all life and breath and all things. We tend to think of uh, happiness or uh, satisfaction in having our, our needs met, Right? And we are very needy people. Very needy people. God made us this way. We need food. We need water. We need sun. We need energy. We need, we need, we need. We have lots of need that we take for granted. They get supplied so often that we don't realize how needy we actually are. But listen, God needs none of these things. And he is completely happy, completely satisfied in his triune nature before time even began. He doesn't need his creation. 
His relationship with his creation has nothing to do with fulfilling some unfulfilled need in him. It's nothing like that. It's completely voluntary and for his glory. Our God needs nothing. That's hard for us to go there, right? Because our flow of thinking is, well, everybody's got need. Breathing things need air. All organisms need food and water. But God needs nothing. Self-sufficient God. In the beginning, He's just there. God. Alright, we could go on and on and on about God, but here's what I want to move into. I want to move into the creation, okay? What we see about creation in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Let me read it again. In the beginning, God created. There it is, He created. What did God create? The heavens and the earth. And then we get a description. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the faces of the water. So in verse 1, we see that God created, in verse 1, He created the heavens and the earth. So in verse 1, we see that God created the, the time, space, matter continuum. He created the time, matter, space continuum when it says He created the heavens and the earth. He created time. That's why it says in the beginning. That's why verses in your Bible say before time began. Because God created time. He created space, our space, and outer space. He created these things. And God created matter. Matter says that which uh, has mass and occupies space. Our God created these things. Okay. Now, it's, it's definitely hard for us to grasp what these beginning stages look like. As we dig into verse 1 and 2, and we're trying to figure out what this looked like in the beginning as he began to create this thing in six days. What did it look like? And it's hard for us to grasp, but we do get some light from God's Word. He begins by saying he created the heavens and the earth. And obviously, this is not the heavens and the earth as we think about them now, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He doesn't mean in the sense that which we think about the heavens and the earth right now. And here's why I say that. When we think of the heavens... We think of this, this unthinkably, unthinkably massive uh, space with an abundance of galaxies and stars and planets and other celestial bodies. But at this point, God has not created those things yet. That's in day four. So God creates the heavens and they're not filled up yet. So essentially what you're talking about here is God creates in Genesis 1-1 this massive, massive, beyond all comprehension, space space. And when we think about the earth, when we think about the earth, we think about this beautiful uh, blue and green creature inhabited place in which we live, right? And when you read Genesis 1-2, you find out that this place is, right now, it's unformed. It's uninhabited. Nobody lives there. It's unformed. It can't sustain life. It can't produce life. This is where it's at in Genesis chapter 1-2. verse We find out that it's some sort of a watery matrix all around it right there in verse 2 it says it says over the face of the deep and just a couple words later it says the face of the waters the face of the deep is this watery matrix so that in the next few days he's actually going to create a, a sky where he has to divide the waters from the waters so you have this thing this earth is not like we think of this watery matrix is here. So what happened in Genesis 1-1 is God created this time in the beginning, space, matter continuum that we know about, okay? He created time 
space and matter. I want you to think about the space real quick. This little tidbit I heard that blew me away. This massive space is going to be able to fill up when he creates it billions of galaxies which contain in each galaxy billions of stars. Now you know that. A lot of you heard that before. This is a space beyond what we, what we could ever imagine, okay? So here's something I got from the Institute of Physics. Listen to this. If you hold up a grain of sand, grain of sand, if you hold up a grain of sand against the night sky, the patch of sky that it covers is 10,000 galaxies <laughs> containing billions of stars. Psalm 19, 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, right? Now you say, how do they know that? How do they know that? Well, even the fact that they're guessing that high is ridiculous, right? If they're just guessing. <laughs> but not to mention, I don't know if y'all saw this, uh, I think it was Jay Grisham put this thing on Facebook. So a, lot of, a lot of you might have. This little thing on Facebook that shows the pictures from Hubble. And it got the little patch of sky. Shows you a little patch of sky that it covers, and it zooms you into those pictures that are taken. You're looking around, and you are blown away. Just that little patch of sky contains all that because of the space that's there. And God created that. So He creates time in the beginning, He creates His space, and He creates matter. And the first matter that He creates is the matter that makes up the earth. Now it's unformed and void, and darkness is over the deep. Okay? So it's not like we think of, but this is the matter that's there as He creates the earth. I just want you to think about that. This tiny little space, first matter God's created before He creates other matter, all flinging it all throughout the universe. Before He does it, the first matter He creates is the earth right here. And it's in this tiny little corner compared to the space that He just created. And why did He do that? So that you know that our God is great. Our God is glorious. He wants you and me to know that. Alright, so what's going to happen in Genesis 1-2? It's going to zone in on this earth that I've been talking about, okay? So what you have is the earth's, the earth's beginning stages. The earth was, in that verse 2, without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So we're talking about our earth. The earth we live on, God's earth, the earth we inhabit, okay? And in the beginning stages, there's three major descriptions that are given right there. Number one, it's without form and void. Number two, it's characterized by darkness, no light. Number three, it's a watery matrix, as I said earlier. Now these 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 descriptions are not to meant they're not meant to invoke in you some sort of like there's there's darkness as in it's evil or there's destruction or some kind of uh, ungodly chaos is going out. It's not meant to do that. These are just beginning stages. This is just like the potter taking the clump of clay and popping up on, up on the spinning wheel. Okay, he's about to go to work, and that's what this is right here. In verse 2. So let's start off with that phrase. Without form and void. These two, these two terms, without form and void, go together to describe a barren wasteland. It's empty. It's uninhabited. And it's uninhabitable. No one can live in this place. No life is there and it cannot sustain life. And it's unformed. Empty and unformed. Unformed soon. Soon God is going to do this. Listen to Proverbs 8.27. He prepared the heavens and he drew a circle on the face of the deep. But right now, it's unformed. Okay? It says darkness, that's without form and void. And it says darkness was on the face of the deep. 
So the picture is this unformed, watery matrix, uninhabited, and it's dark. It's very, very dark. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Isaiah 45, God says, I create light and I create darkness. Not necessarily a bad thing here. So here's this darkness over the face of the deep. Uninhabited. God's going to create people to have to have light, to have to be able to see. But right here, darkness over the face of the deep. I love the observation of Kent Hughes. Listen to what he said. Ken Hughes said this about this darkness. Darkness is impenetrable to man, but transparent to God. And I love that because it lines up with this verse in Psalm 139, verse 12. He says, God, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. I love this picture. So here's what you have. The primordial earth here, okay? This watery matrix, matrix without form, it's dark, it's empty, it cannot produce life, it cannot sustain life. How will God get this thing that cannot sustain life? How will he get it to a place where it's life-bearing, it's life-producing? How will he get it to this sort of place? And this is where you come to my, my favorite, favorite verse, my favorite uh, phrase in verse 2. Listen to it. You got the Spirit of God in creation. And the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the world. The Holy Spirit is here at the beginning, ready to take action, hovering over the face of the waters. He's ready to move. It says He's hovering. The only other place that Hebrew word is used is over in Deuteronomy 32. And it's like the protection of this, this bird, this eagle, hovering over its nest, over its young. This is the picture of the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the earth. He's there, ready to go to action. Ready to take this uninhabited, uninhabitable planet and make it that thing which can sustain life. And as we learn about God, I want you to see this. As we learn about God in this first chapter, who is God? What we see here, we get, we get glimpses into the triune nature of God. You know what I mean by that? The Trinity, the triune nature of God. Okay? Here's what I mean by that. The Trinity of God is an infinite mystery, right? It's a mystery. It's incomprehensible. There is only one God. But the Bible reveals who exists eternally in three persons. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. But there's not three gods. There is one God. This is amazing. And it doesn't pull it out in detail. As we read through Genesis 1, you're not getting that pulled out in detail just yet. But you're getting glimpses into it. You're getting the foundation laid. As it says, you've got God who creates the heavens and the earth and the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the water. Not to mention, as if you go back to that word Elohim in Genesis 1-1, it's, Elohim is plural, and that verb created is singular. Same kind of thing. Listen, listen to what Ken Hughes said about that. He said, remarkably, the mystery of the Holy Trinity is embedded in the first three Hebrew words of the text. Because the name God is in the plural and the verb created is in the singular. So it is that we meet the awesome triune God in the first three words of biblical revelation. So here you got it. The whole God Almighty, the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters of this uninhabited, uninhabitable, can't sustain life planet. And I hope you love the Spirit of God. I hope you love what he does as you see him hovering over the wasteland, ready to infuse life into it, okay? Now let me give you a few takeaways. Just a couple takeaways here. From Genesis 1, verse 1 and 2. 
Takeaway number one is this, which you should take away as you study through Genesis and even particularly these two verses. Give untamed worship, worship to the eternal, trans, trans, transcendent God. This self-existent God. Self-sufficient God. Give worship to this God. This God is worthy of your worship and your praise, is He not? What does your worship say about this God? What does your worship say about God? What does your corporate worship say about God? What does your private worship before Him say about God? When someone sees your worship of God and say, that God must be eternal and transcendent. He must be like, He must be the self-existent one. Psalm 104, if you turn there with me. Psalm 104 is like a creation song. It's as if the psalmist is reading Genesis chapter 1 and he's getting blown away and his heart's exploding with praise. And so he writes this song he's saying. And you know that because all through Psalm 104 you get things like I laid the foundation of the earth. I was over the deep, the spirit of God, the light. He did it all through Psalm 104. We won't read through all of it. But I want you to see how it begins and how it ends. Psalm 104. Verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O, o Lord, my God, you were very great. You were clothed with honor and majesty. You covered yourself with light as with a garment who stretched out the heavens like a curtain. He's telling himself, bless God. What do I do with this creation stuff that the psalmist probably just read about? What do I do with it? He says, bless God, O my soul. Worship your God. You are great and greatly to be praised. And look how it caps off. Psalm 104. Verse 33, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be sweet to Him. I will be glad in the Lord. May sinners be consumed from the earth and the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. This is the response. Worship God. Worship the God who created you. Psalm 33, go there. Shows you a reaction. What reaction should you have to Genesis chapter 1? What reaction did he have in Psalm 33? Look at Psalm 33 verse 6. See the creation and see the, see the, see the reaction. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. And all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. What's the response? Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Stand in awe of your God. Worship your God. You must give untamed worship to this eternal, transcendent, transcendent God. So my plea is don't be cold-hearted toward Him. Are you cold-hearted toward this God? I don't want us to be a group of cold-hearted intellectuals who, who seem to have it all together spiritually. Let's go after being private worshipers in the secret place of this God being described to you. Let's go after being corporate worshipers. We explode in worship to this God just described to you. Let's go after being true worshipers, which Jesus said the Father is seeking such to worship Him. 
Second takeaway is this. Walk humbly. Humbly before your God. When you ponder these truths about God, does it make you want to hide your head in the sand? How can we see these truths about God and believe these truths about God and walk away full of pride, full of arrogance, full of self-confidence? How can we do that? Listen to Psalm 8. I want you to see the response. Psalm 8 says this. When I consider your heavens and the, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've ordained, what is man? What is man that you are mindful of him? You see the humility? You think about Job, when God begins to reveal this to Job, says, Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Did you tell the ocean where to stop? Have you done these things? And you ought to go back and read Job's responses. He said, I repent in dust and ashes. I lower, I have nothing else to say, God. He humbles himself before this God. Is your life marked by humility? Or is your life marked by pride? Consider the Creator God and Humble yourself to the core. Last thing is this. Trust in the work of the Holy Spirit. You see the Holy Spirit there in Genesis 1-2? He's about, he's about to infuse life into that which is lifeless. Okay? The Holy Spirit's there in Genesis 1-2. He's about to take that which cannot sustain life and make it full of life. Okay? This is what He's about to do. You can trust in the Holy Spirit. You can trust in the Holy Spirit. If you're here today and you're in Christ, this is exactly what has happened to you in your life. If you're here today and you're in Christ Jesus, that means you're converted, you're born again. This has actually happened to you. Your heart was a dark and barren wasteland that could not produce life, could not sustain life. You were dead in your trespasses and your sins. But the Holy Spirit... Hovering over the waters of your dark, lifeless heart, He suddenly breaks forth in power and awakens your heart to life. He brings conviction on your life. He says, the Holy Spirit, John 16, they come to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He exalts Christ Jesus to you. This is His job. He exalts Christ to you and awakens you to faith in Him. He comes to indwell you and empower you to live a glorifying life to Him. This is what He does. You can trust in the Holy Spirit. And you can trust Him as you go out and preach His, preach His glorious gospel. That He is at work. The Holy Spirit is at work. Is He not? The Holy Spirit of God is at work. So you go out to take this gospel to, to the lost world. And you can trust Him. That He's hovering over that. And He'll come in and give life to that which has no life. He can do that. The last thing I'll say is this. Somebody here may be unconverted. Maybe you're here. You're not, I don't know everybody here. You're unconverted. You don't know Christ. Could it be that the Holy Spirit, even now, is hovering over the darkness of your life, the evil of your life, the wickedness of your life, and He's saying to you, Come to Christ. Come to this God. Come to Christ Jesus. Could He not be saying that to you? If you have this reality set in your mind that there He is hovering over the face of the waters and He's still at work today, could He not be at work in your heart right now? Is your heart pricked, your conscience pricked about the things of God? Are the things of God in your eternal state bothering you? And if they are, I'd say to you, maybe that's the Holy Spirit working on your soul 
Christ Jesus has proved it. He laid down his life for your sins. He rose up from the grave victorious as the Savior and Lord of all. Could it not be that the Spirit of God is drawing you near to him? Don't reject him. Don't reject him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to open your word right now. Thank you, God, for being so good to us, for loving us, for showing yourself as the eternal one. You're showing yourself as the, the creator, God. And I pray that you would get all the worship out of us, God, to do your name. And Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, God, by your spirit, I pray you'd open their eyes. God, if there's anybody here that's been sitting in just dead religion all their lives, Lord, but have never truly come to you in faith, never truly been converted, never been a new creation, God, convict their souls even now. Holy Spirit, we trust you to do these things. The Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do it, God, that you would take, you would take this glorious gospel, this good news, which they had not cared about before, and all of a sudden, Lord, you make it glorious in their sight. Help me, Jesus.